0: Welcome to ZEOCAST, six questions for industry leaders in unmanned aerial systems, geospatial, and the industries that surround them. Brought to you by ZEO Air. Sit back and enjoy this week's guest. This week on ZEOCAST with Bronwyn Morgan is Ray Adams. Ray brings over 30 years of aviation experience in air traffic management in the New York City metropolitan area in both the terminal and en route environments. Working in some of the busiest complex facilities in the world, he has a large base of knowledge and experience in air transport operations. Through his work with the FAA, Ray has become a subject matter expert in the development and deployment of a number of aviation modernization systems ranging from data link communications to enhanced GPS nav systems and traffic management. Currently, he is the founding principal of the Low Altitude Operational Solutions Group, a consulting firm providing services to the vertical operations space. Join me in welcoming Ray Adams. Ray Adams, it is so great to have you on ZEOCAST. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, Bronwyn, thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. We cannot wait to hear what you're thinking about, what you're working on uh, in this space of low altitude transportation that is taking the entire planet by storm. Um, you've, you have a very detailed and specific set of skills in aviation, as I did a bit more research. How did you make the journey uh, to air traffic control and then now to AAM
1: no, it's it's really an interesting and and long conversation, but I'll try to keep it as short as possible. Um, <laughs> as a uh, as a, as a younger person, I had a, a deep interest in engineering. Uh, growing mm-hmm. up, uh, I was big into computers, and I taught myself how to program computers when I was young, and really got into electronics. Um, and as I went through school and life uh, through as a teenager, I I really couldn't figure out where I would fit in. Um, in I, the uh, the Navy, actually, the U.S. Navy gave me a really great opportunity to uh, become an air traffic controller. So I accepted that. Uh, not that I knew much about air traffic control. Uh, I had a, an uncle that was a uh, small plane pilot. I had never flown before in my life, but I knew I was interested in aviation. I knew I enjoyed the, the, uh, the physics behind it and the engineering and, and just all of the magic that happens in aviation. So I accepted that role. And they, uh, the U.S. Navy forged me into the air traffic controller that I eventually became. Managed to uh, land myself a job at New York Air Traffic Control Center after I exited the military. Um, they were nice enough to take me in and teach me their oceanic operation. I got to learn uh, the ins and outs of how the world operates across the oceans. And, and that was a whole other aspect of, of air traffic control that really nobody understood very well. Um, I did that for a while, and then I transferred over to the Newark Air Traffic Control Tower, where, where I figured out what real aviation is about. Um, not only are you as a tower controller in one of the busiest facilities and complex facilities in, in the country, if not the world, not only are you only a safety uh, advocate, um, you are really an efficiency master. And you start to learn about the ins and outs of the air transportation system and how every piece, every second counts in, in, in the economics of fuel burn and all the things that come along with it and how air traffic control actually is a, a huge piece of the air transportation, air transportation system in general. Um, working around New York city for as long as I have for almost 20 years now at Newark uh, airport, I learned uh, much about helicopter transportation. Um, as you know, there's a robust, or at least before COVID, a robust
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, helicopter Uh, air tour uh, industry around New York city, the um, there's Mm -hmm. a large charter industry around New York city. And I got to understand the ins and outs of um, the benefits and the uses of of these vehicles, Mm -hmm. which um, AAM and UAM kind of flowed out of, right? If you look at how the blades and the Uber elevates of the world have come, the Uber air have come to be It comes out of that New York City market. So it was almost a natural fit when I saw um, the talk, heard the talk about uh, electric vehicles and how they would drive cost savings and they would drive uh, noise abatement in in this industry. And I said, you know what, that's a fantastic place to, uh, to, it's an opportunity to get into the next generation of, of air transportation. And that's kind of how I worked my way through air traffic control into this advanced hmm. air mobility space.
0: Wow, that is quite a journey. And we do share a similar uh, interest as children, and which I think has also led me to this space. And so it's exciting to hear people actually get to live their, their dreams and their vision, especially when we're in this age of, I, you know, I, I liken it to the Jetsons, uh, or at least early stage Jetsons. Um, so speaking of that, tell us about your, your organization, ULTRA and how your informed perspective is shaping the future of aerial transportation.
1: Well, thank you for for uh, bringing Ultra into the conversation. So Ultra is the Urban Low Altitude Transport Association, and we're a nonprofit. We formed about a year ago here in New Jersey. Myself mm-hmm. and uh, my partner in crime, Ron Leach, Ron is a, uh, was a New Jersey state policeman who flew their helicopters uh, for a decade plus and started their UAS program. And uh, Ron and I had informally met through uh the state police um some state police folks that i knew and uh the guy mm-hmm. that i knew kept saying hey you've got to meet my friend ron he's this great aviation guy he really knows what he's talking about he's doing this whole drone thing so ron and i got together we sat down uh went down to south jersey i met up with ron and we talked and we said let you know this i got this idea about uh, a nonprofit that would help bring some of that operational experience that we've accumulated over the years into the headier conversations that are coming down from NASA and from the uh, the think tanks of the world mm-hmm. where, you know, over the years, Ron and I have both seen in aviation where many of the innovations that are driven from the top down, um, which are fantastic innovations, and they always bring benefit, but a lot of times mm-hmm. they're, they're sort of impractical or not easily, Uh, Utilized by the operational people. So Ron and I decided Mm -hmm. to find a way to interject and kind of moderate the conversation around uh, these academic topics and try to try to direct the um, the energy toward a usable, practical um, type of a technology. So that's kind of where where ultra goes. Ultra, we like to bring people into the room or into the conversation. Uh, our advisory core that have um, real experience, deep experience, working uh, hands dirty. We like to say uh, people who've actually flown, people who have operated in these dense and complex airspaces, people who understand the complex regulatory environment that you uh, deal with in metropolitan areas. So that mm-hmm. when these technologies are demonstrated out in, you know, not so dense, pop, less populated areas, that we can say that's great and that's uh, a fantastic technology. Here's how it really kind of has to work or uh, has to assimilate into a much more complex environment.
0: Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I love the fact that, you know, your perspective is one of making this um uh, kind of you know, more, more, more hands-on, more tactical, but from practitioners who aren't just uh, working on the theory, but actually the actual practice and application of, you know, how this actually comes to life. Um, and I think with all new technologies, uh, we often think about what's next. I know, I, I know I do, I see it every day and people often, you know, see, headlines and people think, oh, that's going to happen tomorrow. And it's like, yeah, there's a lot in the middle, (laughs) a whole lot in the middle before that comes to life. And one of the things I like that uh, you shared with me is that, you know, with your Star Wars positioning uh, of real operational experience, how do you see? And I ask this question all the time of people in this space, UTM, uh, Detect and Avoid um, and, and all these other tech companies merging to create a seamless integration um, what's that workflow like and timing?
1: It's really fascinating. Um, I have to say, reading the recent RID and OOP rules that came out of the FAA, it's sad, it looks to me mm-hmm. like the conversation is actually, uh, you know, it's something is materializing here. Right, we've gotten from away from theoretical to some extent. We're getting into the uh, the practicalities of, of risk management, and um, a little bit away from the everything goes kind of a mentality, I think, that we saw early on in the conversations. Um, the, the timing is, is difficult to, to pin down, right, because you've got so many moving parts. The FA's framework, I, I personally thought the FA's framework was very good. Um, they left a lot open to be interpreted, but they said, look, we're going to give you the basic rule set And we're going to let the market and the industry determine how to implement that rule set. I thought that was a really nice way of uh, not over-regulating, but giving enough guidance to industry so that they could get the job done. Um, Mm -hmm. Seamless integration. I don't know if there's going to be seamless integration. I think there's going to be, um, depending on where the integration is happening, I, I definitely see there being, Issues with community acceptance, which I know there's a lot of effort around that to uh, educate Mm -hmm. the public on this, but still, I I, I mean, I deal with this day in and day out in the New York area. We've been flying around the New York area for, you know, 80 years, 70 years, and we've been flying helicopters around for a long time. No matter what you do to um, educate the public, there's a a vociferous minority that always. that always speaks up and, and and causes change, right? So I think seamless mm-hmm. integration doesn't exist. I think mm-hmm. there's going to have to be uh, a step by step. Take the low hanging fruit first, and then work uh, to show benefit to the public, so that the public accepts the benefit, and then maybe some of the complaints would uh, fall into the background. But overall, I still think there's a. It's a it's a it's a long road to hope. In this respect,
0: well, you you really nailed it on the head, and and, and this is a conversation that I've I've had just uh, it was either this morning or last night Um, it actually was this morning, and you mentioned you know uh, the new rulemaking that's that's taking place, and as we think about policy coming from you know the FAA Department of Transportation, um, how do you see that you know based on this whole idea of public acceptance? Um, uh, how do you see that jiving with state and local entities? Uh, I know a lot of folks at the local level would like to regulate uh, more. Uh, You know, of course, the national airspace belongs to the FAA. But as we think about drone ports um, and we think about autonomy, you know, this is going to escalate in a manner that we're just not yet accustomed to. How how do you see all that coming together and, and what, should be at the forefront first in that discussion. Yeah.
1: It's, it's, it's exceptionally difficult. Um, As you said, Mm -hmm. the FAA does own effectively from the ground up, right. They've established that, um, you know, pretty, pretty solidly, but then of course they opened the door to um, delegation of airspace, possibly with some of the RID and UTM uh, con ops and and rules that are out there. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, it's, it's exceptionally difficult to say how that's going to play out. They, I don't think they've made any commitment to, um, you know, how they're going to delegate airspace if they do it right. There'll be uh, commercial competing interests. There'll be commercial interests competing with municipal interests. And, um, you know, there might be municipalities that look to monetize some of that commercial interest. I think there's going to be um, a lot of conversation about how if if a municipality is going to allow or take the political pressure of having large volumes of UAS flying over people's homes um, and that political pressure Mm -hmm. that comes along with it, I think they're going to have to show some monetization of it, some benefit to the community. And none of those, uh, none of that's established yet. So we have a very Mm -hmm. difficult time. So what policies need to come first? I think, I think FAA has to uh, sit down with the, with the industry and with the uh, states and say, look, how, what's the best way for us to delegate this responsibility for low-altitude airspace to somebody who's going to be responsible with it and yet be able to derive a benefit, a mutual benefit from it? Um, and until that those conversations happen, I really don't think we get wide-scale UAS usage.
0: Yeah, it, it will probably certainly be more Uh, localized in in markets where it's kind of a lead market, if you will, um, where things are happening and tested. And because there's so many elements that have to come together, either for drones, everything from delivery to, uh, you know, the kind of work that we do in inspection and mapping to uh, cargo uh, uh, drones. And then of course, passenger uh, uh, drones, this, this has got a, a whole Array of different inputs to it, so that that will be interesting. And so, speaking of package delivery, uh, from your perspective, when can we expect uh, that to happen with UAVs and cargo uh, with with uh, with eVTOLs?
1: Right. It's, so that's interesting, right? So uh, what what I've noticed about the the convergence between UAV and eVTOL from a
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, ability to operate over congested areas and people is that FA has merged those two into part 135, which mm-hmm. I thought was a really, from, from a regulatory perspective and from a safety perspective, I thought was a really good idea. I didn't know if the agency was going to go there because of the pressures that are being put on by the, um, the, the developers, you know, the, the builders of these vehicles. And um, the fact of the matter is a 135 certification is not easy. So it kind of I I think it actually uh, separates the the high quality, um, probably safer type of aircraft from the ones that may or may not be so uh, safe. Unfortunately, it also divides the industry into who has the resources to develop a 135 certified aircraft versus not. Right. But from a regulatory perspective, and being engaged in aviation for so long. Um, generally, commercial operations are accomplished under Part 135 or Part 121, right? So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really thought that was a good idea. Now, you know, when can we expect package delivery with UAVs and and eVTOLs? Well, eVTOLs, I that's generally easier, right? Because I think there there's a uh, they're all going to be certified under Part 135, and there's a pathway to certification mm-hmm. um, there. Even though some of them are. Much more complex or have different designs than traditional rotorcraft. And I think that might be a limiting factor. Not that I'm an expert in certification, I'm definitely not, but a limiting factor in uh, FAA's approvals when you have a, a non conventional type of um, design. Whereas the UAV right. side, I know there was some, I think there was a pathway for five or six developers to get to 135 certification. Um, you know, but again, that's a whole novel, it's a, it's a, it's a novel piece of regulation for FAA. So for them to build that whole regulatory regime out, I think took a lot of work and I'm not sure if there's, I haven't talked to anybody over there about this, but I'm not sure if there's a real, real clear understanding of how that's going to work. So I I personally think that EV tolls may be easier with some of the simpler type of vehicles that are coming fact of the matter is with any type of a cargo operation um, you know your cost per parcel becomes a problem and i'm not sure if the economics uh-huh. work with eVTOLs, um you know talking about the number looking at the numbers that uber elevate was putting out about possibly a 30% reduction in cost um, over helicopter transport it's it's still fairly expensive to fly something like that for package delivery considering that Packages generally bulk out before they wait out. Um, So I don't really understand how the economics work yet. I can see it possibly in certain markets where there's a uh, desire for speed uh, over cost, right? So um, Mm -hmm. where I think UAVs play that same role. But overall, to move uh, mass quantities of goods via eVTOL, I don't think the technology is quite there yet.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah i I can see that and and whether it's a you know electric or an alternate powered you're you're right um because if not you know we're basically looking at uh transfer trucks in the sky um and you know where's the value and and like you said, some of the numbers that we've seen certainly are ambitious um but practically you know how will that work and and, and how will, you know what will that strategy look like uh that's an interesting conversation that we could talk about for, for hours. And I'd like to do, I, I would like to do that, uh, uh, at another time. So, you know, based on all of these dynamic elements and issues, what are the challenges and hurdles that you see that, you know, we need to, you know, overcome for these new initiatives to become a real possibility. I mean, I know we've talked a lot, but if you had to think of the top, you know, three things that you think about that are on your agenda, um, that need to be overcome what would that uh, so be, right?
1: from the the e tall perspective right technology is the first part right we have to get get to a uh, a battery technology that's stable and provides enough power to obviously get the vehicles to fly the routes that are desired to fly right so uh you know hopping from mm-hmm. uh, one point to another a mile away is really not a great economic benefit but if you can uh, develop the technology to the point where it can can serve markets that are, you know, 10, 15, 20 miles, that might be beneficial. The second part of that challenge is infrastructure. Uh, I don't know if any Mm can let you land uh, one of these vehicles on a street in front of somebody's house, Uh, at least not Mm -hmm. where I live. I live in Northern New Jersey, which is uh, very densely populated and uh, it's pretty nice up here. And I really don't think my neighbors would be happy if I landed one in my backyard. So infrastructure mm-hmm. is a key challenge. I know that's been noted um, in many uh, studies from going back to 2017, 2018, and I think it's absolutely a challenge. Mm-hmm. I think that there are a number of entities out there that don't recognize the, um, the political and community challenges that there will be to putting, um, putting vertiport infrastructure Uh, where they think it needs to go. I think that there is uh, Mm -hmm. maybe it works in some less on the fringes of communities in some less uh, densely populated areas, or if you could put them on, uh, you know, on the outlying edges of cities, but to put them, you know, the way some of the the um, white papers have expressed to put them every I don't know, 500 feet or thousand feet or something like that in, in a community is just not going to happen. So that's a real challenge. And then, uh, again, the economics of these vehicles become problematic, too. Right. So uh, all that's definitely a, an issue uh, that has to be overcome. And this is on top of all of the regulatory hurdle that's already out there. So you've, you've got the community aspects, you've got the infrastructure aspects. And of course, the regulatory aspects that are not they're kind of nebulous at this point. It's like almost like uh, nailing Jello to the wall. I think on some of these, mm-hmm. right. Uh, so for UAVs, I think you have a similar issue. I think uh, you know, limited use um, might be possible in the near term, but I don't know if a community starts can accept um, hundreds of these vehicles flying over. Their houses, Uh, you know, it's been said that if the benefit outweighs the the nuisance, then possibly. But at this point, in the near term, I don't think that's going to happen. I think there has to be a sea change in the benefits case um, to see that happen. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm Mhm, mhm, mhm. These are very uh, these are these are deep issues, Um, and it's going to take us a little time to get through them. Um, I, I do think we will you know, reach a, a, a scenario where we do live in a, a much more of a Jetson society. But we've got, you know, big things to figure out, um, and, and you know, how it all comes together tech-wise, um, public policy-wise, um, and safety-wise, just to make sure that this works effectively and economically. Well, Ray Adams, those have been your six questions. We're so excited about that. Thank you so much for this amazing input, and we look forward to talking you with you so again. Thank you so much.
1: Have a great weekend.
0: ZEOCAST is a podcast dedicated to all things unmanned and geospatial. Only six questions per guest, so you can get the essence of their wisdom. Brought to you by ZEO an outsourced AI-based drone services and data management company www.zoair.com